0: Father in heaven, we're here in this place. We've already been blessed in singing songs, praising you for all that you've done. Been blessed in hearing stories about your goodness. And Father, now we're asking that you would speak to us through the power of your word. That it would be transformative. Lord, we just want to open our hearts to you right now. The world is in turmoil around us and we need a solid foundation And that is Jesus Christ. Would you come close to us? Would you speak to our hearts through your word? May Jesus be magnified, I pray. Fill us with more love for you than ever before. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. He was just a young boy. And he was walking down the side of the road. He was on a mission. He was headed to the hospital. He walked three long miles to get to the hospital. You see, this was back in the 40s. Actually, it was back in the 30s at this time when before you could uh, have special updates come through your television set, he had an update come through on the radio and his whole family had been sitting there in the living room and they had heard over the radio that there's been a serious accident on Highway 29. And we need somebody to donate blood. Would you please come to the hospital if you're willing to donate blood? And so there was little Desmond walking along the road, three miles to get to the hospital. And he gets there, he donates his blood, and he walks three miles back all the way home. His sister, who tells the story, said it wasn't two days later that they heard over the radio again, Attention, We need for some more blood. If you who came the other day wouldn't mind coming back to donate blood again. Once again, little Desmond, who heard this over the radio, walked three long miles all the way to the hospital so that he could donate blood to hopefully save another life. You see, Desmond Doss had been raised with the awareness of who God is. We talked about that the first Sabbath of the series, focusing on who God is, knowing God fills us with grace and peace in our life, but more than that, it also lives us, leads us to live lives of love. Desmond Das had in his living room a picture of the Ten Commandments, and on that picture he had this, this picture of Cain standing over his brother Abel with a club raised right after he had killed him. And, He used to go and he used to stand on this chair because he was just a little boy and he would stand up there and he would look and he'd read the commandments and he'd look at the pictures on the commandments. Remember the Sabbath day, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt have no other gods before you. Uh, You shall have no graven images, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. As he would look at these images, it was ingrained upon Desmond that he served a God of love. Because you might wonder what motivates a child to walk 6 miles in order to donate blood when he just hears an announcement about a stranger over the radio. What motivates somebody to have that kind of self-sacrificing giving love? First John chapter 2 gives us a picture of the kind of love that you and I are to have. First John is a letter written by the apostle John. The one who's the disciple known as the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who most exposed himself to the love of Jesus, who was most transformed by the love of Jesus. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 5, we looked at this two weeks ago. And if you missed any of the, the sermons, messages, you can go on our website and you can download those and listen to those. But 1 John chapter 2 and verse 5, it says this. Actually, let's go back to verse 3. 1 John 2, verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this we know that we are in him. Do you see this connection between knowing God knowing the commandments and the love of God being perfected in our hearts. That self-sacrificing, giving love of Christ comes into our hearts as we know who God is. And we recognize that through his word, through his commandments. And as we keep his word, as we know his commandments, we do his commandments, that love becomes perfected in our own hearts. Then it goes on to say this in verse 6. He who says he abides in him, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. That's a challenging thing, isn't it? It's a beautiful and yet challenging thing to think that the Bible challenges you and I to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. Now the world loves Jesus. Why is it that that people love Jesus? They may not Uh, appreciate Christians. They may not appreciate the Bible, but when they think of Jesus, a lot of people uh, appreciate who Jesus was. It was because of the life of love that he lived. They may not understand all that he taught, and if they did, it would probably lead them to appreciate more of Christianity, but we know the life that Jesus lived was a life of self-sacrificing, giving love. This was what led Desmond Doss to to live the kind of life that he lived. In fact, when he enlisted in the military and he was determined not to carry a gun, he was determined that all he was going to do was to run into these massive battles with machine guns, with mortars, with all kinds of hand grenades and bombs going off, that he was going to charge into battle with only two satchels, two medic satchels with him. Desmond says this in, the, in an interview on the conscientious objectory, a, a documentary, which by the way, today at 4.45 we're going to be going to the park and we're going to be passing out these books, something that people have been so thankful for. They say, who's doing this? Why are you doing this? This is so great. But we're coming back at 6.30 and there's going to be some snacks in the fellowship hall and then at 7 o'clock we're going to be watching this film, the, the conscientious documentary. Uh, Conscientious objectors, so I invite you to come at 7 o'clock, even if you're not able to come to distribute the books, but come and you'll get to see some of these interviews yourself and it's a really fascinating uh, documentary about the life of Desmond Doss. But Desmond says this, I couldn't picture Christ out there with a gun killing people. All I could think of was him out there with an aid kit said, I tried to picture, what what would Jesus do? I want to serve my country. I believe that this is a cause that I need to be out there for. But I just can't picture Jesus out there with a machine gun. I can't picture Jesus doing anything except for carrying an aid pack to help other people. That's what motivated and inspired Desmond in his life. That's what drove him, was to save life and not to take life. Jesus himself, in talking to this same disciple, John, you know, John didn't realize this love of Christ early on. When he first started following Jesus, he had some different pictures about what Christ was all about. Go to Luke chapter 9 with me. Luke chapter 9 is a fascinating story where the disciples try to rise up to defend Jesus and his mission. In Luke chapter 9, We will start with verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus recognizes that the time of Daniel 9 is about to be fulfilled, that it's about the time for him to go to the cross. So he sets his face to go to Jerusalem, even though he'd been persecuted in Jerusalem, even though he knew what was going to face him in Jerusalem, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. In verse 52, and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. So as he's going to Jerusalem, He's recognizing that it's coming to the place where he's going to be going to the cross. He's going to be taking your sin and my sin upon himself and dying there on our behalf. And he wants as many people as possible to know the good news of what he's about to do. So as he's headed there, he begins to send missionaries, to, uh, messengers out into different towns so that they can alert the town to say, hey, Jesus is coming. Get ready for what he's going to come and he's going to share, and then he's going to share what he's headed to do. Continuing on in verse 53, this town of the Samaritans didn't react so well to the messengers who'd come through their town, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. They weren't happy that he was going to Jerusalem and they were Samaritans. They didn't like the people that lived in Jerusalem. There's a little bit of racism back then too. Verse 54, and when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Jesus, do you see what they did? They just rejected you. They have no right to do that. You're the son of God on earth. Let's just call fire down from heaven and destroy that whole village of Samaritans. And this really had happened when Elijah was sitting on a hilltop and commanders had been sent to to take him prisoner. There had been fire called down from heaven on them and different sets of 50 of of these soldiers were, were destroyed. That's an Old Testament story. Here, they're saying, hey, do you want us to do the same exact thing that Elijah did and just call fire down from heaven and we'll just destroy this whole village because they won't listen to you. And that'll teach everybody else to listen to you, Jesus. What do you think, Jesus? Is this a good idea? Jesus responds in verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Here was the king of kings on earth, and he took the path of humility. He took the path of love because he said, I came to save lives and not to take them. I came to make a difference in people's lives. I came to make people whole. And what I love about the life of Jesus, is you look at how did Jesus actually walk, if we who abide in him, if we who know him, if we who know his commandments are to walk in the same way that he walked, how did he live his life? What's fascinating is that Jesus worked so many different miracles, but Jesus often intentionally worked his miracles on Sabbath. Have you ever noticed that before? As you read through the Gospels and you read the story of Jesus, there there are people like the woman who had been bound with a spirit for 18 years She's hunched over, and she's there, and and Jesus sees her, and it's the Sabbath, and he knows exactly what's going to happen, and she's been like this for 18 years. Jesus could heal her on Sunday, or he could have healed her on Friday, but instead, he says, woman, you are loosed. The Pharisees are upset. They say, why would you do that? He said, wouldn't you loose your own ox on the Sabbath to go and get a drink? How much... More should we loose those who have been bound, this woman who's been bound for 18 years. Jesus came to bring wholeness, to bring happiness, to bring health to people's lives. Jesus did that for the man at the pool of Bethesda who for, I believe it was 38 years, had been there as an invalid, and and Jesus healed him on the Sabbath and told him to take up his bed and walk. Jesus loved to make people whole on the Sabbath. In Matthew 12, we find another story like that. In Matthew 12, Jesus goes to make another person to work another beautiful miracle on behalf of a man who had a withered hand. Now, in this time, it would have been a bigger deal to have a withered hand because so much of what took place was manual labor. In order to provide for yourself, it would be very difficult if you had a, a withered hand. Jesus sees this man, and he also sees the spies who are there looking at him, who are are ready to accuse him, who are ready to condemn him if he's going to heal this person. And sure enough, after he tells him to straighten out his hand, and he does, uh, they, they say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? In verse 11, then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it? and lift it out of how much more value then is a man than a sheep therefore it is lawful to do good on the sabbath it is lawful to do good to make a difference in somebody's life now this is an interesting text for two reasons one because jesus really wanted to point out to them that it we should be doing good on the sabbath it's Also interesting for anyone who feels that Jesus said, I'm doing away with the law. I'm doing away with the law of the Sabbath. I'm showing you that you don't need to worry about the Sabbath because what does he say? It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus wasn't doing away with the law. He's saying, actually, the law reveals to us that we should do good on the Sabbath. Now, does the law actually reveal this? We talked last week about how the seventh day Sabbath points us to God as our creator and how that confidence in God as our creator can lead us to pray to him like Jeremiah did in Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen, to pray and say, you who made heaven and earth, Ah oh Lord God, nothing is too difficult for you. It can lead us to, to live heroic lives like Desmond Doss, to charge out into battle, to pray prayers in the midst of battle because we know that our all-powerful God will hear and answer. But does it really show us that we should be doing good on the Sabbath? Go with me to Deuteronomy in chapter 5. A lot of us are familiar with the Ten Commandments being given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And we're familiar with Exodus 20 where those, uh, we have a recording of what God wrote with his own finger in stone. Deuteronomy is a book that's actually the second uh, reading of the law. It's, it's, it's where Moses comes and he explains before he goes to his death to the children of Israel the law of God. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses reviews the Ten Commandments. Now, a lot of it is, is very similar. It begins out with a, a, a quite a similar thing. But go to the Sabbath commandment with me in verse 12. Verse 12 says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Now, so far, this is pretty much the same as the fourth commandment as we find in Exodus chapter 20, except for this last part about your female servant may rest as well as you. We see here that God wasn't just concerned with the children of Israel, but he was also concerned with anybody that was within their gates, with anybody that they could possibly be a blessing to on this day that he wanted for them to have rest too. But at this point in Exodus 20 the law goes on to say for in 6 days the Lord made the heavens the earth the sea and all that is in them is and rested on the 7th day and we talked about last week how God blessed the 7th day he sanctified it he filled it with his own presence it's a 24 hour period like no other 24-hour period where you and I can have the presence of Jesus in our life. And that was something established on the seventh day of creation, something that's perpetual, that continues on, this blessing that he shows up. Because what sanctifies something? The burning bush became holy only when it was filled with the presence of God. Mount Sinai became holy only when it had the burning presence and fire of God there. The tabernacle, we read last week how it became a holy place because it was his presence, he said, that sanctified it. It's God's presence that makes something holy. So he rested on it and he blessed it and he sanctified it. That means he filled that 24-hour period in a special way with his presence. You can have the presence of Jesus anytime, any day, but in a special way, you can have the presence of Jesus on the seventh-day Sabbath like you can have no other time. Such a blessing. But here, rather than going on to point to us, us to the creator, it goes on to say this, verse 15. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So here it says, not only do you remember him because he's creator, But you also should keep this seventh-day Sabbath because he saved you out of Egypt. Now, what's the connection here? Is there really any connection between this salvation out of Egypt and the creation story? Go back a little bit in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 32 says this. This is Moses again in, in his sermon. He's saying, For ask now concerning the days that were past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth. Look back over time, over history. Look back all of the days since creation and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether any great thing like this has happened or anything like it has been heard. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and lived? Or did God ever try to go and try to take himself a nation from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great terrors according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Do You see here he says, think since the time of creation. Has anything like creation happened? Nothing like it has until this moment of salvation for Israel where God showed up and he rescued a people out of slavery, out of bondage, and he took them out of bondage and brought them out into the wilderness and eventually into the promised land. So God ties in his creative power with his salvific power. His ability to create is really the same ability that enables him to save. Because honestly, which is more difficult? For those of you that are artists, I honestly don't fully know the answer to this question. But I imagine if I was there painting an oil painting and it got really messed up. Like maybe you allowed me to come and try to paint a little bit on your painting. It wouldn't be so pretty because I'm not an artist which is easier, to start with a blank canvas or to start with that piece that has been messed up by me? Which takes more creative power to fix the, the one that I've messed up or to start with a blank canvas? Do you see how it takes creative power in order to take something that has been innately messed up, that is, has been destroyed, that is, has been that has fallen apart like our creation has. And to take it and to restore it takes creation power. You find this throughout the Bible. You find it in Psalm 51, that that prayer that David prays. In fact, go there with me to Psalm 51 in verse 10. David is here praying after he has wrecked all that God had in store for him. He has slept with Bathsheba, another man's wife, and he has asked for that man to be killed and, and arranged for him to be killed. He's lied about it. He's totally given up on following God's way. And when he's confronted with this reality, this is the prayer that he prays. And it's a, the whole chapter is a beautiful prayer, but we'll focus in on verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. It says, God, I need you to create in me a clean heart. And the the Hebrew word there for create is bara. That's a word only used to associate with the creative power of God. It's something that only God can do. You and I can make things, but we can't create in the form of bara. David says, would you create in me a clean heart? It's messed up. It's... It's filled with lust. It's filled with hate. I've, I've wrecked my life, God. Would you create in me a clean heart? Second Corinthians 5.17 says that you and I can be new creations in Christ Jesus. That the old will be gone and that the new will come. The gospel is about you and I becoming new creations in Christ. Salvific power and creative power are one and the same. Jesus is our creator, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and all things were created through him, and nothing that was created was created except for that which was created through him, first John, or John one tells us. Colossians one also said that all things were created through him, and all things are sustained through him. That same creator, Jesus, our, our God, is also our Savior. Does this make sense? His creative power is the same as his salvific power in our lives. We need a Savior, and our only Savior can be the one who created us. So this picture in the Bible is one of coming to the law of God. When First John, 1 John uh, 2 talks about knowing his commandments is knowing God, and that we should walk in the same way that he walked. We find that Jesus came and he filled the Sabbath full of meaning by doing good on the Sabbath, by working works of salvation, by saving a man with a withered hand, by saving a a man who was lame by the pool of Bethesda, by, by saving a woman who had been bound by a spirit for 18 years. Jesus wants to set you free. He wants to work creatively in your life in a special way on the Sabbath. Just look at Ezekiel chapter 20. We looked at Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 20 a couple weeks ago, where it talks about how the Sabbath leads us to a knowledge of God. Ezekiel twenty and verse twenty says, Hallow my Sabbath, and they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. You want 2020 vision of God? The Sabbath is such a beautiful picture of who God is. Don't miss out on the Sabbath. The Sabbaths are a sign that you and I might know who the Lord our God is. But if you go back to verse 12, it also tells us this. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. I'm the one who's going to set their lives right. I'm going to lead them to walk in paths of righteousness. I'm going to create a clean heart in them. The Sabbath will point them to my salvific power, that I'm the God who created them and also the God who saves them. We have reason to worship Jesus on the Sabbath. He's our creator, and he's also the one who saves us. Desmond Doss understood this. This was why from the very beginning of his time in the service he was unwilling no matter if it took abuse from fellow soldiers or no matter what commander said he said I'm going to stand here on my convictions and say that I will not work on the sabbath if somebody's injured if somebody's hurt then I'll go out there and I'll I'll help them I'll do good on the sabbath because I want to make a difference but I I'm going to respect this time as a time for me to pursue a knowledge of my God. And he was ridiculed. He was shamed. He was treated as somebody that nobody wanted to go into battle with. Who wanted to go into battle with this guy who wouldn't carry a gun, this guy who slacked off on Saturdays? They just weren't sure that they could trust him in battle. But Desmond knew that there's power in trusting in the Almighty God last week, we looked at the story of how they got to the, the island of Okinawa and how they were there at the Maida Escarpment, which is also called Hacksaw Ridge, and how on that day, he saved 75 lives after everybody else had retreated. He had, had been up there, and he was up there for 12 hours. And It's interesting, I was watching an interview between Uh, his pastor and and another pastor was asking a little bit more about his story and he said, so when he was up there on the ridge, what was it like for him as he went around on the ridge? Now some of you have seen it in the Hacksaw Ridge uh, movie trailer but he was praying the entire time, Lord give me just one more. Lord give me one more. He would go out and he would get one and he would drag them back. He would use that special knot that God had given that wisdom. His creator had given him wisdom and he would put the two loops around the leg and he would lower them down the cliff one by one and the people down below were saying, all right, Desmond, come down now, come down now. He'd say, no, there's still more out there and he would run back out for 12 hours. So this pastor said, I asked him a question. I said, did you keep crawling from man to man during those 12 hours up there? He said, no, I did for the first few men. I would crawl to them, I'd grab them, and I, I'd, I'd make sure that I'd apply whatever they needed for their wounds, and then I would drag them back crawling. But then I realized something. As the bullets were whizzing and things were, explosions were happening and nothing was happening to me, I realized that God was protecting me. And so I actually stood up on the top of that ridge, and I began to go out and grab person after person. And he would, he would grab them and he'd put them over his shoulders and, and drag them back. Or he would go and he'd drag two people, one on each arm to get them back. People who were just barely able to limp. Person after person. Like we said earlier, the, his commanders est- estimated that he saved 100 guys that day. He says, no, I think it was more like 50. So they split the difference and the Medal of Honor was given for him saving 75 lives. One of his fellow medics tells an interesting story. I believe this was the day after that occurrence. His name was Baker. He said, we were up there on the ridge and there was a man who was injured by an explosion. I believe it was a grenade explosion and both of his legs had been blown off. He said, I, I, I ran up to him and as I saw that both of his legs were gone and he was, had such severe injuries, I said, no. There's no point, I can't save him, and I ran on looking for somebody else. As I was going along, I looked back, and Desmond came along, and he came up to this man who was there without his legs, who looked like he was about ready to die, and Desmond began to bandage his wounds. Desmond began to work earnestly on him, because Desmond believed that every life was worth saving. And Desmond began to take that man who had two legs blown off and eventually he got him and he was able to pick him up and is able to carry him off that ridge. That man lived until he was 72 years old. A life saved. Because Desmond followed in the footsteps of his maker. The one who said, I didn't come to destroy lives, but I came to save lives. The one who had the infinite love to reveal to humanity. And Desmond wanted to do the same thing in his own life. One man by the name of John Staler was there, and he was injured up on the ridge. And as Desmond came up to him, he said, as Desmond was working on me, dressing my wounds, I looked at him and I realized he had no weapon. And I had a forty-five pistol there, and I said, Desmond, take this pistol. Take take something to to defend yourself. And he said, no. I can't kill anyone. It's my religion. said, so as I looked at him, he was so calm. I said, here is a true warrior. This is a hardened soldier in the midst of battle who looks at a man who will not pick up a gun, who's determined to save as many lives as possible, and he says, here was a true warrior, a warrior for Jesus. You know, it was interesting. Stories began to circulate that Desmond was actually saving Japanese soldiers. They found Japanese soldiers who had American bandages on them. Desmond would crawl around while everybody else was in their foxholes. The orders were not to get out of their foxholes. He would be crawling from person to person, administering aid everywhere he went. And apparently he was also helping out the Japanese. At one point, the soldiers got so upset with him that he was running to help some Japanese and they all drew their guns and they said, don't get anywhere near those people. We will not let you help them. And so Desmond realized that he couldn't do it in broad daylight. He couldn't do it while his soldiers were there watching him, that he couldn't save every life out there because he might get killed by his own soldiers. Desmond lived a life to save others. And he was inspired to that life because he knew Jesus for himself. Go to John chapter 15. We looked at John chapter 14 last week where Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. If you truly love me, you'll keep my commandments. And whoever keeps my word, he goes on to say in verse 23, Whoever keeps my commandments, I will manifest myself to him. I'll come to him and I'll reveal my love to him in a special way. In John chapter 15, he continues with this, as he talks with the disciples, we'll go to verse 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Let that sink in for a minute. If you don't get anything else this morning, think about this for a second. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. How much love is there between the Father and the Son, who were co-eternal persons throughout eternity together? How much love existed there? That's the same love that Jesus feels for you this morning as you're sitting here in church. Jesus feels that kind of love for you. But apparently it's not okay just to know that he loves you like that. It's not okay just to have a, a conception of this love, but he says, abide in that love. Apparently it's possible to not stay in that love. It's possible to not be changed by that love. If you think about Jesus' disciples, we read from the Apostle John who writes the letter of 1 John, who writes about the love of Jesus. But we also know about other disciples like Judas who ended up betraying his master and ended up hanging himself. Both of them at first misunderstood Jesus and his mission to save life and not to take life. But one person opened their heart and abided in the love of Christ, while the other decided to take his own life. So how do I abide in the love of Jesus? Isn't that the question? I want to live a life where I'm constantly In that amazing love of Jesus, verse 10 continues, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Friends, there's this terrible lie out there in the Christian world that Jesus didn't keep his Father's commandments. But it's very clear here, isn't it, that he didn't come to destroy the law. It's very clear here that he kept his Father's commandments. Is that clear from this text? That I kept my Father's commandments, and if you keep my commandments, you too will abide in my love. And that's what the commandments are all about. They're about loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and about loving our neighbor as ourself. So often we approach the law just like the Pharisees are, and we try to boil things down to what we can't do in life, and we try to set boundaries around the law, and we add things to the law just like the Pharisees did. But Christ has come to teach us that the law is about love and about loving wholeheartedly and liberally the people around us. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Do you want a joyful heart? Jesus says that comes from keeping his commandments, from living a life like Desmond Doss where you're determined, you're wholehearted about pursuing a knowledge of God, about pursuing the commandments of God and following, walking in his commandments. These things I have spoken to you, that you, my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. There's a mystery in the community who espouses evolution. In fact, this is something that was a problem for Darwin. As Darwin was looking and and coming to his theory about evolution and about how uh, things evolve over time and species become different species, as he looked at the origin of species and he came to these conclusions, he was bothered by something, and that was altruism. Altruism is basically the idea of self-sacrificing love, the idea where humans and other creatures will actually lay down their own life in order to save another life. Now, some have tried to grapple with this to say, well, well, maybe it's because of this reason or that reason, but when it comes down to the survival of the fittest, it's a problem to understand why any creature could evolve having this type of love because when you lay down your life for somebody else, that noble purpose that's in your heart dies along with you and you can't pass it on to your heirs. But Jesus, the creator, the true story, the one who actually created us, planted that seed in heart. So when you see somebody that's willing to lay down their life, when you see the veterans who have gone before us, who were willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice so that you and I could sit here and worship freely today, that altruism, that self-sacrificing love, we only love because he first loved us. It's something that he has planted In our hearts. And Jesus says that there is no greater love than for you and I to lay down our life for one another. Then he says this You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. When we follow God's law, Jesus lays down his own life in a special way for you and I and wants to work in a creative, salvific way in our own hearts. He wants to create in you and I a clean heart and that will go on to give us the joy of his salvation. Desmond experienced this in a radical way in his life. He experienced this from the time he was a child and walking three miles to, to give blood and three miles back all the way to the end of World War II. Now, just a few di- weeks after uh, the, the meta-escarpment battles that took thousands of lives, but Desmond was able to save so many lives, Desmond, by this point, already had two bronze stars. He had several purple hearts. In fact, he had just said, well, condense those injuries into one, and, and I'll just go with one purple heart for that. All these different things were given to him, And he was a a candidate for the Congressional Medal of Honor. But Desmond kept on saving lives. In fact, one of the lives that he saved up there on the Maida Escarpment a few days after the, the Sabbath, where he saved 75 lives in one day, it was Captain Jack Glover who was injured. Captain Jack Glover said, I was the one who told him, You will never fight by my side if you don't carry a gun. I don't want any person like you fighting beside me in this war. Captain Jack Glover goes on to describe that the whole irony of the situation is that Desmond Doss was the one who saved his life. In fact, he said it like this, not only was he a skinny little kid, but he was one of the bravest persons alive. And then to have him end up saving my life was the irony of the whole thing. From the beginning of his first combat mission until the last one, he absolutely was fearless in regard to what was going to happen to him. You can go back over Medal of Honor winners, and it's because of one absolute moment of decision. And Doss's Doss's was a constant doing of something that was so outstanding, not only once, but time and time and every time again. This coming from the man who was unwilling to fight in battle next to this unarmed soldier who later on says he was the bravest man out there. This skinny kid who didn't weigh much more than 130 pounds was the bravest man out there on the battlefield. Well, just a couple weeks later, his, the, their unit had been sent off to rest and recuperate. They said it wasn't much of rest because they were there on this battleship that was constantly having to fight off kamikaze planes from coming and hitting their ship. But suddenly they were called back into the middle of the battle. They were called to take another uh, another hill and as they were going out, it was a night attack and they were going all night long marching towards this specific target that they were going to take. As they got closer and closer, they were trying to make it. They, they didn't even have any bullets in their weapons because they were trying to be totally silent in their attack. But suddenly they were discovered, and the Japanese began throwing hand grenades all around them. They said, Desmond said that he and three other men dove into this shell hole that was created by a big mortar. They were there in this shell hole, and he said, all of a sudden I looked off to the side and I saw this glistening a fuse. And I realized that somebody was about to throw a grenade. A Japanese soldier threw a grenade. It landed in the bottom of that pit. He said, I just immediately stuck my foot back to where I knew that the grenade was. And I put my head down in my helmet. And then the next thing I knew, I was seeing stars and being tossed through the air from this explosion. His body was filled with 17 pieces of shrapnel all up and down his leg and into his back. He said, I began to limp, the other two men were okay, they'd been shielded by it, but I I began to to limp out of the battle zone as best I could, and eventually found his way to a hole where there were a couple of other men hiding in it, and he put his feet up because he was bleeding so badly so that he didn't fully lose consciousness, but eventually he did lose consciousness until morning. At that point, when he woke up, some litter bearers finally came back. In his Medal of Honor citation, it says that he purposefully didn't call for a medic because he didn't want for others to have to come. He bandaged his own wounds. He took care of his own wounds. But finally, Baker and and three other litter bearers came and and took Doss, and they they were carrying him back. And as they were going along the long, grueling trip back to the aid station, they were marching along with Desmond there. He was in so much pain. He said, I was floating in and out of consciousness because of all the blood that I had lost. When all of a sudden, he said, I woke up and... There was this tank fire going on. The the enemy had, had discovered them, and there was enemy fire going on, and so they dropped the litter, and everybody hit the ground. And he said, As I woke up and I was fully conscious again, I looked over to the side, and there was a man who was laying there who'd been shot, and he had a wound to his head. As I looked at that man, I said, He's injured worse than I am. And I began to crawl over to him, and When he got over to him, he began to bandage his wounds, and eventually the the fire ceased and the litter bearers came over and were trying to put Doss back on the stretcher, and he said, no, don't take me, take this man. They said, no, we need to get you out of here, you're important, you save lives, you've saved our lives, we're taking you. He said, no, take this man and not me. Finally, they realized that Desmond wasn't going to take no for an answer, and so they they took this, this man off and Desmond began to walk with another man limping along. Another man was helping him and he had his arm around him and before long, suddenly there was a sniper uh, shot that came and hit Desmond's arm and it shattered his whole forearm and up into his, the rest of his arm and he was on the ground again. And the other soldier said, what are we going to do? How are we going to get you out of here? He said, let me see your rifle to take the barrel off of it and give me the stock. And so they gave him the stock and he began to make a splint out of the stock for his own arm. And then Desmond crawled the last 300 yards back to the aid station. Desmond was a man who was determined to save life no matter what it cost, his own life. When I read about a hero like that, I I long to have that same heroic faith, don't you? I long to trust in God like that, don't you? But here's the amazing thing. In a letter that Desmond wrote home to his family on March 24, this was before some of the bigger battles, but he had already saved numerous lives, letter written March 24, 1945, he says this. He's describing how he's praying and he's going through a Sabbath service and he describes it to his parents. And he says, I thanked him for using me to help save lives, but asked him also that it might be his will to let me have some part in saving at least one. Here's a hero who saved hundreds in war, who is a part of saving so many lives. But he said, I wish to at least be able to save a soul. I hope that somehow this can work out for the salvation of somebody. And I believe that that's happening right now as this film comes out and many people are going to be hearing the story of Desmond Dawson. They're going to be wondering what faith he had and they're going to look to the God that Desmond served. I believe as we share these books that that opportunity of salvation is going to go out and Desmond's going to be surprised by the number of souls who were saved by his influence. But friend, I want to encourage you from the mouth of a hero himself what really matters more than even going out there and saving those who are dying from physical ailments is to save people to to see people saved eternally that's what jesus came for to seek and to save that which is lost And as you and I know the God of the commandments, the one who spoke from Mount Sinai, this law that is love, as we know him as the God of the seventh day Sabbath and we experience him during those 24 hours, first of all, my challenge to you this morning is to allow him to recreate your own heart, to create in you a clean heart this morning. I want to be saved by the blood of the lamb today, don't you? In Revelation, there's only two things that God is called worthy for. In Revelation chapter 4, the, the 24 elders bow before the throne and they worship God and they say, you are worthy for you created all things. The second thing is in Revelation chapter 5 when they worship the lamb and they say, you are worthy for you were slain and you bought us with a price. There are two reasons that we worship God on the Sabbath. There are two reasons that he's worthy of your trust in your life. There are two reasons that you can cling to Jesus in any situation you go to. He's your creator and he's your savior. And it all is reminded, we're reminded of it all on the seventh day Sabbath. So this morning, I want to invite you to kneel before that magnificent creator. To kneel before him if you want to cry out to Him this morning. I just want to invite you to kneel before Him this morning. As your heads are bowed, I just want to give you two invitations in your own heart. First of all, I want to invite you to ask Jesus to save you this morning. Ask Him to create in you a clean heart. Trust in the cleansing blood of the Lamb, the one who is your best friend, who is willing to lay down his life for you. And secondly, I want to invite you to commit to that Savior that you will be a conduit for his salvation, that you will allow him to work in your life for the salvation of others. Father, we just want to pray the same prayer that David prayed. Do you create in us a clean heart? Renew a right spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. We also want to pray the prayer that Desmond Doss prayed. Would you give us just one more? Would you give us the opportunity to help one more person see Jesus? Father, we recognize in all that's going on around us, we don't know how much time is left on this planet, but we want as many people as possible to see your love, to see your grace, to have the opportunity to accept your gift of salvation. So, Father, this morning, we commit to, number one, allowing you to be our Savior to number two, being used by you for the salvation of others. Lord, lead us to daily, consistently, constantly pray these two prayers that you would create in us a clean heart and that you would give us one more. Lord, bless my friends as they go out this week to live a life of worship of their creator and their savior. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.